Good morning. Happy Monday. I have Neuro Coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right, we are back. This is this is uh, relatively live. Um, we vacated the premises for about a week. We were hiding up in the mountains somewhere. Um, very little Wi-Fi access, which is probably a good thing to unplug for a little bit. Got a lot of thinking done, so it was great. Um, quick reminder, those of you who are IFAST University members, we have a 1 p.m. Q&A call, you and I together. It will be great as usual. So um, if you're not signed up for IFAST I suggest you do that. You can do it very, very quickly, and then we'll see you at 1 p.m. Okay, so let's dig in to Monday's Q&A. This comes from Josh, and Josh says, Hi, Bill. Hi, Josh. And he says, can you describe the sequence you use when attempting to improve a wide ISA with limited internal rotation and external rotation measures of the shoulder and the hip? Do you go after internal rotation first or do you try to improve uh, external rotation at the zero to 60 degree range first, then internal rotation, then external rotation at the higher ranges? Thank you. Josh, I really like your thinking here. And I think you're kind of on point, but let's go ahead and talk our way through this so we really have some, some logic and some understanding as to the, the how and whys of how we're gonna address this. Um, so first things first, let's, let's talk about how we got here in the first place. So we're gonna break out the, the skeleton here a little bit. My skeleton just happens to have this beautiful wide ISA, right? And if we turn him sideways, you can see that he's actually kind of compressed too, which is kind of cool when you think about it, that I didn't even ask for this and this is what I got. <clears throat> so when we're talking about the wide ISA and they, they lost internal and external rotation, what we've had is a series of compressive strategies that allow us to manage our center of gravity on, on two legs. But what ultimately results in this is as we compress, we're going to lose our ability to move the scapula. We're gonna increase the concentric orientation of superficial musculature. And then ultimately what we're gonna do is we're gonna lose our, our internal and external rotations. Um, the same thing is happening in the pelvis as it is in the thorax. And so we're gonna lose hip range of motion and shoulder range of motion. Under certain circumstances, this is totally expected. Um, it's associated with training, high force production. Um, so very, very strong individuals may demonstrate this and be perfectly fine and, and perfectly happy. Um, under other circumstances, this might cause discomfort, pain, and progressive degeneration of, of structure. And so again, um, in some cases we like it, in some cases we don't, we just have to turn this into a management process. Now, the thing we want to keep in mind is, is as we move through this, as we, as we compress and we start to lose um, rotations, um, our, our wide ISA bias biases towards internal rotation. And so as we compress, we're going to be biased more and more towards that. And then so our external rotation strategy then becomes an orientation. So what happens over time is we compress, move towards IR, we lose ER, and then we, we turn our external rotation strategy into orientation. We turn the sockets into external rotation. So we change the shape of the ilium, we change the shape of the thorax, and we start turning our sockets outward. So eventually they point straight out to the sides. And then what ultimately happens is we lose our gradient within the joint. So we have a fluid gradient that allows us to move through space and we will eventually lose that. So if there's no gradient, there's no movement. So again, very, very useful. If, I, if my goal is high levels of force production, like say a power lifter or something like that, um, where I'm willing to give up range of motion for higher force production and 
for lack of a better term, greater stability. But ultimately, it becomes so stable that it just doesn't move well. So our first goal here, Josh, is to restore a gradient, first and foremost, whether we're talking about internal or, or external rotation. Now, let me throw a few perspectives at you that, that may be helpful. So if we think about the evolutionary order of things, um, back when we were swimmers and before we, were, we evolved onto uh, land creatures, we were very biased towards external rotation. So if you watch a frog swim in the water, they're very, very biased towards external rotation. Their, their propulsion is towards IR, but they're still very, very biased towards ER. So as we walk out of the water and we become land-based creatures, we have to internally rotate um, to be able to propel against gravity and maintain our position against gravity. So from an evolutionary perspective, what we want to do is we want to chase external rotation first. It came first. It's easier for us to recapture. There is a predominance of external rotation in movement versus internal rotation when we think about the, the grand scale of things as well. Now, from an embryological standpoint, you personally evolved in your mother's womb in external rotation, and then you gained internal rotation. Um, later on. And so if we think about evolution, we think about embryology, um, right away we got to say, okay, ER, ER bias is what we're going to chase first. Now, from a logical standpoint, what we're going to have is we're going to have limitations in internal and external rotation under these circumstances because of the loss of gradient, but we're probably going to have some range of external rotation that's going to be available to us, assuming that we're still capable of moving through space to some degree. And so these are going to be our lower ranges of what we would consider traditional flexion. So as you stated, that zero to 60 kind of a range is, is where we're going to have to start to work. And so it stands to reason if that's the range that we have available to us, this is what we're going to try to access. And then we're going to try to regain some expansion under those circumstances. So that's going to be an ER bias as well. So step one, as we go through this process, eliminate interference. So anything that reinforces the compressive strategy is going to become interference for us. And when we're trying to recapture the segmental movement um, that, that you're speaking of. So things like, oh, what would they would classify this as, as horizontal pressing um, are probably going to be interference. Anything that's a high force output that requires that I use a breath hold is going to be interference because it's reinforcing our compressive strategy. And again, if we're trying to restore gradients, we just can't have that. So again, we're going to move towards that lower end of external rotation. Now to capture um, more of that external rotation or to move us towards the internal rotation capabilities, which is which is further up the chain, so to speak, in regards to the range of motion, we may have to get you off your feet because what we have to do is we have to gain eccentric orientation of, of musculature that's interfering with our ability to move. To do that, we have to reduce the forces. So sometimes we actually have to reduce the force of gravity to do that. And so we take you off your feet, that reduces the internal forces that we produce ourselves, and it reduces the, the external forces that are associated with gravity. So under those circumstances, um, Sideline activities, gentle rolling activities are great ways to start to reshape the thorax and the pelvis, um, as well as just taking advantage of, of the, the change of the direction of gravity to promote that anterior posterior expansion that we need to gain eccentric orientation and start to recapture um, some of these ranges of motion and allow us to reorient the scapula and, and, and the anomnon. I would point you towards um, cer certain videos um, that would promote the, this anterior posterior expansion, especially dorsal, rostral, and posterior expansion. So the the dr uh, 
dorsal rostral expansion videos on YouTube. Um, there's a better band pull apart, and I actually think I have one on, on end game wide ISA strategy, so I would check those out. Um, as far as training goes, um, you're going to want to use short, staggered stances because again, we can't we can't go into the the deeper elements of, of flexion because we're just going to dive right into some form of compensatory strategy that we probably don't want to reinforce. So again, staggered stance. Um, there's some arm training videos that that I have posted that that will show. Um, useful stances and useful positions of the upper extremities. So then, as you gain hip and shoulder range of motion, and so we can we can approach this 90 degree uh, of traditional shoulder flexion. Now we can start to to reinforce with with reaching activities, um, pushing and pulling activities, half kneeling strategies and such. I posted a half kneeling um, breakdown last week. You might want to check that one out because it's going to reinforce some of the concepts that we're talking about here when we're talking about what you see in certain orientations in half kneeling. The one thing that I would stress to you, Josh, if your goal is to recapture ranges of motion, then um, you got to make sure that you got to breathe through these activities because the minute you start um, associating a breath hold or, or using any form of, of forced exhalation strategy during these activities. You're just reinforcing the compressive strategy. You're not going to recapture your gradients and you're not going to recapture your internal and external rotations. So I hope that leads you in a certain direction that is useful. Again, check out the videos on YouTube. I thank you guys. I will see you later this afternoon. Everybody have a great Monday and I'll see you tomorrow. Good morning. Happy Tuesday, I have Neuro Coffee in hand and it is perfect. Always a big day, October 13th. Today is Sammy Hagar's birthday. I believe he is 72. Um, he doesn't look 72. He doesn't act 72. I want to grow up to be Sammy Hagar, I think. Um, anyway, happy birthday, Sam. Sorry you didn't get to go to Cabo this year. Maybe next year. Okay, time's a wasting. Let's dig into Tuesday's Q&A. This comes from Philip. Philip says, hope you're doing well. I am, thank you very much. I've been going over a video in which you talked about ankle sprains and why they occur. You stated that you have to immediately start resisting, um, i.e. putting your medial calcaneus on the ground in order to avoid spraining your ankle. What strategies would you use to reinforce that resisting component and potentially prevent a certain number of ankle sprains. Thank you so much for the crazy amount of free content you're putting out. Well, you're very, very welcome, Philip. And I like the fact that you said potentially prevent. I don't think there's there's any way that we're ever going to prevent um, injuries. We might be able to mitigate them to a certain degree. And I think that the answer comes down to, to preparation. We prepare people as best we can. And then there's going to be circumstances that we just can't can't control. Um, all of these injuries tend to be multifactorial, especially in dynamic situations. But with that in mind, let's do a quickie review of some, some, some foot stuff and then we'll, I'll actually show you a little bit of a, a progressive strategy that you might be able to utilize, at least conceptually, you'll be able to use, use this um, that, that may actually help you improve the ability to produce these, these forces during, during the propulsive phase, especially with cutting and, and, and such. Okay, so we grab our foot. So remember, we've got a, a heel rocker, ankle rocker, toe rocker. That's kind of common vernacular. And what we're going to say is when we're landing, we're going to be landing in this early propulsive 
uh, foot strategy. So we're going to have a, a, a higher arch. We've got a tibia that's going to be externally rotated. Now, this is not a, a force producing position um, under most circumstances. If you try to produce force under the circumstance, you're going to tend to want to roll to, to laterally. So again, this is, this is the mechanism for your typical lateral ankle sprain. So just like Philip was saying, we want to get that medial calcaneus down to the ground. So during this, this, this ankle rocker phase, what we've got is the tibia that's internally rotating. We're moving towards the traditional pronation. That gets the medial calcaneus down to the ground, and it moves us through the middle propulsive phase towards max propulsion, where we're going to apply the greatest force into the ground, which is at, at that point of maximum pronation. Okay, so we have to be able to capture this, this middle phase of propulsion and then max propulsion as a protective mechanism against this ankle sprain, but it's also our highest force producing. So once again, we go back from, well, are we really preventing injuries or are we just preparing people effectively? And again, I lean towards the, the preparation side of things. Now, so let's talk about how we could, we could reinforce this concept as we move somebody through um, sort of a, a dynamic progression, if you will. Keep in mind, this is not an exact progression of any kind. There are many baby steps that we can take. But first and foremost, what I would say is that we want to be able to capture this medial calcaneus, the internal rotation of, of the tibia. We're going to be representing max propulsion with the internal rotation of the hip. So if you needed some test retest is can you move through this progression and, and continue to capture hip internal rotation? It's a pretty good sign that you're, that you're being successful. But we're just going to start in a static position. So we're going to show Eric here going through this progression with us. And so he's just in a static position in a split squat, medial calcaneus on the ground, and he's moved the tibia through this middle propulsive phase. And so he's going to hang on to tibial internal rotation, medial calcaneus on the ground, hip internal rotation. Once we can do this statically and maintain uh, control where we have uh, the maintenance of, of hip internal rotation, now we want to start to add some dynamic element to it. So he's just going to drop into the split squat and then try to capture this exact same position. Okay, so he's got to absorb some more force. He's still got to be able to maintain the, the medial calcaneus contact and, and again, continue to capture internal rotation. Next, we can add a rotational element into this externally rotated position. So we're driving a force into external rotation that he's going to have to resist to hang on to that medial heel, hang on to the internal rotation. And, and again, we, we've increased the forces that he's have to withstand. We can magnify that even further. So we're going to use a water bag in this situation, which has some momentum to it that he's going to have to control as well. So this teaches us how to manage some of these internal forces that we produce within ourselves that we also have to manage as part of this, this dynamic dynamic movement. Um, once we do that, we can move through this, this full middle propulsive phase with something as simple as, as a sprinter step up. So he does the step up, he's moving the, the ankle through an earlier phase of this middle propulsion and he goes all the way through to the end of propulsion um, and we can actually increase load and stress. And so now we've, we've established this relationship from the ground all the way up. So we've got control at the pelvis, we've got control at the knee, we've got uh, control at the ankle. Once we do this, we bring him back to the ground and we just slowly 
increase the, the dynamics and the forces. So we might start with something that, that looks like, like an A march. And this is gonna take the foot into the position of max propulsion where the calcaneus is gonna start to break from the ground. And this is actually the point where we're gonna produce maximum force. And then once again, we just increase the dynamics. So this becomes an, an A skip. We can eventually break people into to any number of like the mock drills or, or any kind of sprinting drills. If we're working on change of direction, we move him into uh, the, the dynamics of, of sort of flatter cuts where the, the load is a little bit less. And then finally, we get to where we would produce maximum force with, the, with a really sharp cut where we're moving in and, in and out. Um, all the while, we're gonna monitor him for the ability to make sure he gets the medial calcaneus to the ground. And we can do so in, in any number of means. But again, I think hip and trunk rotation is always a great way to, to monitor that because if we can hang on to the internal rotation, then we know we have at least the mechanics that are available to us to, to keep that medial calcaneus to the ground. So Philip, I hope this gives you a little bit of a representation of, of what I was talking about. And again, keep in mind, this is not an absolute prog progression of any kind. There's a lot of baby steps you can take uh, in between all of the things that, that, that I've shown today. So if you have another question, please ask it at askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com. Have a great Tuesday. Happy birthday, Sammy, and I'll see you guys later. Good morning. Happy Wednesday. I have neuro coffee in hand and it is perfect. Okay, so I got to start off with a little bit of wackiness. Um, I watched a little TV last night, which I never do during the week. And the reason that I watch TV is I had to watch The Bachelorette. Please don't judge me. I have a very important reason. So, first guy out of the limo, Ben, 29 years old, retired um, Army Ranger veteran. Um, I've known that kid since he was 15. He's a great human, no matter how he's portrayed on this show. Um, he's awesome. So please support Ben. He did get a rose, apparently, at the end of the show. So um, we will see Ben next week on The Bachelorette. So please tune in and, and root for Ben. Okay. So uh, it's Wednesday. The day is tight. we got to go through this Q&A. we got to get through it um, rather quickly. i got a case study for today, which is kind of cool, um, which we'll go through. And this comes from Austin. Austin says, I got a patient with left-sided neck and low back pain who also fractured their left fifth metatarsal head two years ago. Uh, this person is diagnosed with scoliosis as a child, but they're unsure of the direction of the curve. Uh, table measures. Okay, so pay attention. These are really good. Hip flexion, 85 on the left, 90 on the right. 45 degrees of external rotation bilaterally. 40 degrees of internal rotation on the left hip, 25 on the right. Straight leg raises 40 on the left, 50 on the right. This person cannot adduct either hip, and there are zero degrees of horizontal abduction in the shoulder bilaterally, and this person is a narrow ISA. And then Austin says, what do you see? Let's break this down step by step, and then we will come up with some, some solutions, okay? So let's grab the pelvis as we do, okay? So, let's start with, with my archetype first, okay? So we're gonna go narrow ISA. We're gonna assume because we have limited uh, extremity excursion that we don't have normal breathing. Um, so we don't have full excursion of breathing, so we know we're gonna have a narrow IPA as well. Okay, we've lost external rotation on both sides. So, my narrow ISA IPA biases me towards more 
external rotation, less internal rotation, just by the archetype. I still have about 100 degrees of excursion, but I've lost external rotation on both sides. Boom, that means I gotta, I gotta have an anterior orientation, okay? Now, um, I'm, I'm limited in hip flexion, and I'm limited in straight leg raise, rather severely in the straight leg raise, which means that because I've got an anterior orientation here, so I know that I've got the, the posterior compression above the trochanter, but my hip flexion measure and my straight leg raise tell me that I've got this compressive strategy below the level of the trochanter as well. Now, the one confounding measure that we have is that we have what appears to be normal hip internal rotation on the left versus the right. So what we have there is we have a little bit of a right-hand turn. So if we go through space-time here, we're going to go archetype, anterior orientation, and then there's going to be a little bit of a left rotation here like so. And what that's going to do, it's going to point the acetabulum down and forward, and that's where you re actually recapture some of that internal rotation. Now where this is actually coming from is we've got a turn that's, that's up here right above the pelvis. And the way we know this is because if we had a left turn, of, of, the, of the lumbar spine and we had a sacral base that could yield back on the left hand side, our hip flexion measures and our straight leg measures would go up, even if we did have this posterior compression, because what we would do is we would get a roll back on the measure as they're laying on the table, which would magnify the hip flexion and straight leg measures. Since we don't have that magnification, we know that we've got this compression and a turn to the right. Now, we, we also know that we have traditional extensions pushing forward on both sides because we've got the anterior orientation on both sides. But again, it's just biased a little bit towards the left. And again, that's why we pick up this, this hip internal rotation. Okay, now, another thing to remember. If I've got this scenario in, in the, the, uh, the lumbar spine and the pelvis, I'm gonna have the same scenario in the, the upper thorax and the lower cervical spine. So Austin, this might be why you're seeing left-sided neck pain and left-sided low back pain, okay? Now, we can't say exactly why, but that might be it. So you're gonna wanna pay attention to left shoulder flexion. So as you recover left shoulder flexion, it's also going to be indicative of the fact that you're reducing the left uh, I'm sorry, the, the, the right rotation that, that you've created um, through the, the lumbar spine and the pelvis because you're going to bring it back in the uh, upper thorax and the lower cervical spine at the same time. Okay, now, plan of attack. We've got to reduce the anterior orientation. We've got to expand. We've got to expand the, the outlet of, of the pelvis. We've got to create a yielding strategy. So we want to create a yielding strategy on the left and a propulsive strategy on the right. So a couple things that we can do right off the bat. If you want to go manual, you can do a scapular decompression. You get dorsal rostral expansion on the left side. There is an ileal decompression um, manual technique that you can use. It's a little personal. And so we want to um, only use that if, if we really, really need to. From an exercise standpoint, um, what we're going to do if we need to, um, we'll start them in, in a supine hook line position. Um, one, we got to keep them below the level of, of their restriction in hip flexion so we don't go into a compensatory strategy. Um, but they're going to be somebody that puts you put something between their knees to squeeze to create the internal rotation so you offset that posterior lower compressive strategy which is going to drive them into um, an early compensatory hip external rotation. Um, so now if, and if you throw on a, a left yielding strategy and a right propulsive strategy on top of that you got a really big bang that might clean up a ton of stuff all at, all at once. This can then become 
a supine cross-connect activity. So this is a little counterintuitive because you think about, well, Bill, if I take that opposite knee into too much hip flexion, I'm going to create a compensatory strategy. Yes, and we're actually going to take advantage of this. So when I put somebody in supine, I bring the right knee towards the chest and they hit where that compensation would start. If I can keep the knee biased towards midline, what's going to happen is they're actually going to roll towards the left side and actually help us create the yielding strategy on the left posterior aspect of the pelvis and the thorax. So this is actually really Really, really cool that we, that we can use something like this. Now, the thing you're going to, have to do is make sure that you maintain the left hip in an internally rotated position as they do so. So again, you might want to go hook line and then supine cross connect. The cool thing about the supine cross connect is this becomes a left supine arm bar in the gym if that's where we're going to, you're going to um, move this person. Um, once we can capture consistently our, our hip measures, then we can turn this into a, a uh, rolling arm bar to the left. And again, all we're doing is reinforcing left yielding strategy, right propulsive strategies. And again, we're just, we're just feeding the position that we need to restore um, our normal uh, movement options, okay? So Austin, I hope that gives you a couple of ideas on how to approach this thing and you understand what you're looking at. If you, if you don't and you have more questions, please send them to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com. And tomorrow is Thursday. Guess what? Coffee and Coaches Conference Call is back. So I will see you guys at 6 a.m. tomorrow. Have a great day. Um, tomorrow's Chips and Salsa Day too. All right, see ya. Happy Thursday. I have a neuro coffee in hand and it is perfect as usual. And we are back after a week of vacation. All right. So when doing an RFE split squat, like a rear foot elevated split squat. Rear foot elevated split squat. Okay. Right. Would you rather the big toe be in contact with the bench or the top arc of the foot. You'll see people like try to use different strategies. And I get that it might uh, like reinforce different patterns on the opposite hip that you're training. Yeah. But, um, and I guess it is context specific, but like what have you found to be like your go-to? Do you want to know what the difference is? Yeah. Yeah. Let's go over it. Okay. So, so this is, so this is actually, um, a, useful to know. I don't know how valuable it is from a, a return on investment standpoint, but, but the difference is um, where the load on the back leg is going to go as far as the contribution of joints. Okay. So if you are, if you are uh, in a, a, an ER position of the foot, so it'd be like plantar flexion supination, which would be like the, the dorsum of the foot is supported on a bench or something like that. Um, you're going to use you're going to use more of the backside hip to push yourself up and out of the uh, uh, split squat. Okay. Now keep in mind, keep in mind that when you elevate the rear foot, you, you, you shift load anteriorly anyway. So if you look at like, the, the last research that I saw, they were using a, a bench and I can't remember how high it was, but it's like a typical gym bench. And I think that the split was like 80, 85 or, or uh, the, the maximum load to the front leg that they could produce was 85% of the total load. So it's body weight load plus, plus bar. Right. Um, but if you, so if you, if you use like a, one of those padded bars, 
and you hook your foot over it and you dorsiflex, you use more of the backside knee to, to distribute the load onto the back leg. Once again, it's not terribly valuable, but, but I could see little tweaks here and there that, that it might be useful to distinguish between the two. Um, but it's also going to um, um, direct you towards where somebody might be lacking some, some movement um, that will influence the, the position and the outcome of the, of the split squat, right? So, so think about as I sit down, so if, if I have my, the dorsum of my foot supported, knowing I'm going to load, like I'm, I'm going to be pushing through what would be traditional hip extension coming out of that, it's like, okay, is that really what I want to do? Or, or do I want to shift more of that load to the, to the hip extension on the lead leg? And, gotcha. and so again, so, you know, people would call this single leg training. It's like, well, okay, if I got two feet in contact with something, I'm using both sides. It's just how am I using it? Right. right. And again, it, it, it's a subtle, it, but you, if you do both of the, uh, both of them, like just go to the gym today and do both of them, you'll feel the difference. You'll feel the difference in, in where you're distributing the load, but you can manipulate the height as well. Um, and, and again, that's, that's going to push some of that load more towards the back leg. The question mark is, is like, what do you want the outcome to be? Um, you know, I, I have people that come in and, and they say, well, don't I have to do a split squat this way? And it's like, well, no, um, there are many ways to execute. It just depends on, on your, your intended outcome. I have a client, female, narrow, like typical presentation of a narrow, goes down two inches in a goblet squat. And then drops, knees clack in, everything like just nice. it's, it's 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 um it's it's really a sight to see. Okay. From a progression standpoint, would you recommend box squatting with the goblet still anteriorly, or would you recommend some sort of like a back squat variant to reinforce more compressive strategies? Well, okay, so so here's what here's what could potentially happen if you went straight to the back squat. Okay. Okay. So because of the the position of load and the the uh, strategy to hold bar position you're going to increase you're going to create a compressive strategy in the upper thorax okay that's going to drive pressure downward so so the first question that you want to ask is why is this person accelerating towards the ground in the first place they can't manage pressures internally Okay, and, and that's, a, that's a great answer. Now explain it. Like as soon as they reach a certain point, uh, pelvic bones reorient and the guts spill straight down. Right, so, so they're just following where the, where the, the volume is going. So, so we, we can only move into a space that we can expand. Okay. okay. That's how we move. We move into a space by expanding. So we compress somewhere and then we expand somewhere else. And that's the direction that we go. Right. So when you see someone accelerating straight down into a squat, 
Okay. Because they're expanding straight down. They're expanding straight down, right? Okay. So the pelvic diaphragm is most likely eccentrically oriented. And so they're going to follow where the expansion goes. Okay. So, so more often than not, it's when you see that acceleration, it's somebody that cannot produce enough concentric orientation to, to resist or reverse directions. So if anybody, okay, since we went over everybody's, uh, uh, PR deadlift. Let's put a PR squat on your back for a second. If you've ever had a scenario where you you sat down into a very, very heavy squat and you started to come up and you went right back down, okay? That's the same scenario. It's not that you don't have concentric orientation. You just can't produce enough pressure to overcome the downward forces that, that are associated with the external load and the internal pressures at the same time, okay? So it's literally the same scenario. Okay, so what would you do under those circumstances to raise your ability to come up out of that deep squat with a very, very heavy load? It's the same strategy that you're going to use for anybody else, right? So do they have to back squat? Is there a reason that they would have to back squat? If there isn't, then what I would do is that, like, let's establish some element of control in a position that, that you can be successful first and foremost, right? So if I want to if I just want to make a pretty squat first, which is probably under most circumstances what your goal is going to be, it stands to reason that I don't want to create another, another force downward that they're going to have to manage when they can't manage the first one. Right. Right. So it might be, it might be that you take any external load away. Or even like strapping a band to a pull-up bar and unloading it, no? Um, you, can, you can definitely do that. Right. So, so um, there's, there's a few ways to do that, but yeah, that, that's what a reverse. So the reverse band type yeah. of squat, right. Is to reduce, is to reduce that, that the downward forces that are associated with, with, with the, the, um, the load okay. velocity, <clears throat> velocity is demonstrated in using an expansion, using an expansion based external rotation strategy. Right. Internal rotation and compression slow time, slow down time. They literally just slow it down, right? Um, so you can't be fast um, um, as you produce force. So for like, since since you and I talk baseball all the time, if I'm trying to throw a baseball, you know, 90 plus miles an hour, um, I better not be in a concentric orientation for very long because all I'm going to do is slow myself down. Yeah. The idea is just to be prolific, and that's how the good ideas arise. Um, I talk about Dolly Parton a lot. I'm not a. I'm, I'm a fan of her. I'm not a fan of her music, <clears throat> um, because she has constructed something like all by herself. Um, but there's a documentary on on uh, Netflix about her, and she has written over three thousand songs in her career. My point is, is like she wrote 3000 songs, but we can only talk about maybe four or five. And yet we all know who Dolly Parton is. Right. Right. So um, it's not about, it's not about the fact that she wrote 3000 great songs that, that will live forever. It's the fact that she wrote 3000 songs and these five will stick in everybody's head forever. It's time to update things on the infrasternal angle. Sit tight. Good morning. Happy Friday. I have neuro coffee in hand and it is perfect. 
solid week coming back from vacation, wrapping it up. I'm looking forward to a great weekend. I got a great Q&A question to wrap up uh, the week. It is from a physical therapy student named Zoe. Zoe says, I am currently a first year DPT student. I am so sorry to hear that, Zoe. I know how you feel. Uh, I come to you by way of Joe. So Joe is a friend um, and love learning about your model through the Q&As. As a student, I'm trying to measure as many ISAs on those who will let me. Yeah, uh, you gotta ask permission. Always, always ask permission. I've come across different measured standards for wide versus narrow, anything over under 90, 108 degrees. I'm curious what number you use. As I'm still practicing, I've been using a goniometer to take the measurement and would love some clarity on the cutoff, so to speak, of wide versus narrow. So, Zoe, for, and for those of you that only watch a minute of this video, <clears throat> let me cut to the chase for you. There is no standard, there is no optimal, there is no ideal ISA. Stop measuring them with goniometers because it doesn't matter. Okay, video over. No, so let's talk about this a little bit. Let's talk about some history. Let's get into some of the numbers and, and, and talk about why they don't matter. And then we're gonna talk about the best way to go about utilizing this element of structure um, as to where it lies on the scale of importance. Okay, so from a history standpoint, um, the physical structure has been around for a long time. We've paid attention to it for a really long time. So let me show you a little representation there. So you can see the differences in the physical structure. So this is the slender and the stocky uh, types from Joel Gothwaite's book, <clears throat> and that's Body Mechanics, originally published in 1934. Okay, so we've been talking about this kind of stuff for a really, really long time. Fast forward to the 1980s, and you've got like Upleasure talking about it. You've got even the Rolfers were talking about, about the differences in structure. Um, lead into the 2000s, and, and Shirley Sarman talked about it in, in, in her books as well. And kind of, and, and there's, there's use in, in some of her um, reductionist approach to that. Um, there's a couple of practitioners in New Zealand that have actually registered a trademark. So they, they named the infrasternal angle, they gave it a funny name, and then they, they registered the trademark. Nobody really cares about it because nobody uses that name as far as I know. And then if we get to, to close to the, to the to 2020 here, there's been a couple Korean studies where they were looking at ISAs and they're trying to find a, a good way to measure it. Um, and they're trying to find sort of like some averages or some sort of weird optimal. And then, um, they were trying to determine uh, inter-rater reliability, which, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> which turned out to be very, very high inter-rater reliability. So that's good for us because it gives us an, an, an opportunity to just say, okay, we're all gonna be pretty good at determining what is a wide and what is a narrow. But where do these numbers come from? So Shirley Sarman participated in a study with, with, with uh, uh, another uh, practitioner, I'm assuming, uh, named Zeller in, in 1983. Um, it, it's in a supplement from physical, the Physical Therapy Journal, which apparently doesn't exist. I can't find it anywhere. Um, but they, they talked about 83 degrees as some sort of average or optimal or something weird like that. I think the Koreans found something that was just shy of 90 degrees. And so it's, it's almost like they, they said, okay, well, you know, it's kind of like that. So let's just say 90 is, is, the, is the standard. And so a lot of people are using 90 as the standard. The, the New Zealanders are using 90 as the standard. But I think it's, I think it's a little bit of horse hockey. Um, it's kind of like just throwing a dart at a dartboard and going, oh, 90, okay, we'll call it that. 
um, because there's really no foundation for it. It doesn't really represent anything useful for us to try to chase a number and say that, that this is optimal, this is the standard, and we need to push people towards this because again, it's just not very useful. Um, the, the one number that I've used and talked about um, is, the, is the 108 thing. And where that comes from, Zoe, is is from two behaviors. So so uh, Graham Scar did did some work in 2013, and he was looking at, at at the helical orientation of a tube. I don't think you can see this very well. So I got I got helices drawn on a tube, and and so the helical angle is where everything crisscrosses, right? So it looks like an ISA, and then they measure from the vertical. And what he found was that when you have an angle from the vertical at about 54.44 degrees, I have a tube that can elongate and expand in both directions equally. And so what that would be representative of somebody that would have, say, the ability to inhale and the ability to, to exhale effectively. And then we say, well, there's the optimal. But the reality is, it's like, no, that's just somebody that has that capacity when they have that kind of an angle. So chasing it is useless because um, trying, to, trying to put somebody into a standard is like trying to change somebody's height or their shoe size and say, oh, um, I'm sorry, sir, you're six foot six, you're way too tall. If we can make you six foot three, you'll feel so much better. And so we can't look at this thing as, as, as something like that. So we're not chasing an optimal, we're not chasing a standard, and we're not chasing a number. Get the numbers out of your head, except for one reason, and I'll tell you that here in just a minute. So what, what, what comes out of all this stuff, so all the people that came before us had bits and pieces of information that are very, very useful, but you gotta look at a whole bunch of resources and then try to bring them together. And that's kind of what I did when I constructed the wide ISA and narrow ISA archetypes, is I was looking for the behavioral bias that would help me determine what the best intervention for this person is to restore some capacity of adaptability. And so what the ISA represents is one small piece of a big puzzle because what it represents is the structural element that, that this person will be biased for for life. It is a genetically determined um, uh, structural element um, that will um, tell me um, what type of muscle activity they're going to be biased towards. It tells me what type of breathing strategy they're biased towards. It tells me uh, concentric, eccentric orientation. Are they biased towards internal and external rotation? And so that's why my archetypes are so important for me because it allows me to determine the best possible intervention that's going to restore the adaptability. I'm not trying to chase a number. I'm not trying to push people towards something that they have no capacity to reach. I will never be an NBA basketball player. I'm not even going to try because I know I I can't do it. Kind of along the same lines. Okay, so what we have is an ISA that helps us determine part of, of the structure that's going to determine the behavioral bias of this human being. So now we got to talk about how do we measure this thing. So I've got a video on YouTube that shows you how to measure this. Um, it's going to help you determine whether you're biased towards a wide or a narrow. And there's a certain way that I do it, so go watch the video, please, and, and then you'll have a really good idea of, of how this happens. I don't give a rat's patootie about the number, um, but I'm going to give you a heuristic to start you because what you need, you need something to guide your thought process. So we're gonna say that if, if the angle looks kinda like it's close to 120, it's gonna be a wide. If the angle's kinda close to 60, it's gonna be a narrow. And you go, oh, wait a minute, halfway between is 90 degrees. 90 must be optimal. No, 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 no. Don't chase that. 
All you're trying to do is you're trying to determine what this person's structural bias is going to be. Will that, will that angle change to some degree? I hope so if they don't have movement in the ISA because what we need is that ISA to move as a representation of a diaphragm that moves and an axial skeleton that, that has reacquired adaptability. That's what it's for. Once you start measuring these things, what you're gonna do is you're gonna say, oh, this is a wide and this is a narrow, and the numbers are gonna slowly disappear from your mind, and you're gonna start to rec represent the bias. If you're not sure, make your best guess as a human being, intervene, and then pay attention to what happens. The goal here is to narrow the probabilities of your success. It is not to chase a number. It is not to chase an optimal, okay? Um, real quick. So if you read Shirley Sarman's stuff, she's gonna talk about moving the shoulders into full flexion during this ISA test. I think that's a mistake because to get your, your arm fully overhead, the ISA has to reclose, which means that you're gonna, you're gonna have some um, false positives um, towards your narrows and you're gonna have some of your wides look like they do have a dynamic ISA. So please follow the instructions in my video. Zoe, I hope this helps you to some degree. Stop chasing numbers, get the goniometers off everybody's rib cages. It's, it's a bias, it's structure, it's not gonna change, but it, if you use it with my archetypes, it will lead you towards better interventions and hopefully more successes. You're still gonna have failures. The idea is to reduce the probabilities of, of what is possible and to help you be more successful. Have a great Friday, have a great weekend. I'll see you next week.